Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a certain man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. And when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. And Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze upon him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. And with a leap, he stood upright and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. I'll pray. Heavenly Father, um, we acknowledge that you are the author of what we've just read, that you've given us the Bible. And you've given it to us that we might profit, that we'd be strengthened and encouraged. And Lord, that all the work that you want to do, you do by the means of your spirit through your word. So I pray that we would be taught of you and that our hearts would be responsive, God, to all that you want to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. When I was a kid, um, growing up in the 60s and 70s, uh, there's a lot of change going on in society, and, and, um, and I know that my parents were fighting it as much as they could to keep us kids from going in the direction of the world, and um, must have been stressing my mother out quite a bit, because one night she dreamt that my younger brother walked into the house um, smoking marijuana. And so my mother looked at him and said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm smoking a joint. Peace, baby. (laughs) And my mother, in her dream, grabbed him by the hair and just started violently shaking him, which she would have done in real life. So it wasn't just, um, and so, but she didn't, actually have him by the hair. Obviously, it was just a dream. But she did grab my dad by the hair <laughs> and woke him up. <laughs> she, <laughs> my dad, wake up, wake up. He said his hurt, head hurt for a week after that. I am so glad that uh, my mother didn't interpret all of our behavior according to the dreams that she was having. You know, there's, there's quite a bit in the Bible about people having dreams. Um, we're at his hill. We've been looking at the Gospel of Matthew, and Matthew starts out with Joseph having had four dreams. And he was just one of many people in the Bible that have had dreams. But when you look at all of those incidences of dreams, they were still rare. And if a person were to conduct his life on the basis of dreams, you'll lose your mind. And I have no doubt that on occasion, rare occasion, God will speak to somebody 
through a dream. But we should not ask for God to do that. We should not go through our lives analyzing our dreams and trying to figure out when God has spoken and maybe when he's not. It will drive you crazy. All I can assume is that looking at dreams in the Bible is that somehow when God was speaking to somebody through the means of a dream, they knew it with absolute certainty. This is not what I normally have with a dream. This was truly God speaking. Now I say that because now we're talking about a miracle here in this passage. Peter and John, and they heal a man who's been lame from birth. And there is a tendency today to take this, in fact, take all of Acts, and make it normative for today. And to somehow convey, get the idea, and to communicate it to others that this is the normal thing that God wants to be doing every day in every person's life. Miracles of healings. To me, that makes no more sense than to say that you should be assuming that every dream that you have, God is speaking to you. These are the exception. Does God heal today? Absolutely. Should we expect that every single sickness is going to be miraculously healed? Absolutely not. Just as God speaks to people today through dreams, that is the exception. We should not assume that every dream is from God. The vast majority will not be from God. Nor should we assume that God is wanting to do that every sickness God wants to heal miraculously. That's just not the way it is. So this is a bit of a long introduction, but I think it's important. There's been, I I found very helpful in, in my teaching to put up on the whiteboard on occasion a timeline of when miracles take place in the Bible. And... They start, the first time we see miracles repeatedly occurring in the Bibles with Moses. That's when Israel came into existence. And then after Moses, Joshua also followed up with a lot of miracles. And then you don't see them anymore. I mean, there was occasional miracle taking place, but not just this deluge of, of miracles like we saw with Moses and Joshua until you get to the days of Elijah and Elisha. And then same thing, they just pretty much peter out. There's occasional miracle here and there, but they were very much the occasion and not the normal thing that was happening. Until we get to Jesus and the disciples. And then once again, with the two witnesses of Revelation. So when you look at those, that timeline, Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha, Jesus and the disciples, and the two witnesses of Revelation, there are a few things that are in common. One is that Israel is always the audience. Miracles are signs to the Jews. 1 Corinthians says the Jews seek for signs and the Greeks seek for wisdom. So there's something about the Jewish mentality that miracles as signs of God's working are very important to them. So it's not that they were the only time that miracles took place, but it is principally with a Jewish audience. Never until Israel was formed all the way to the end with the two witnesses who will be ministering within Israel and Jerusalem in particular. Another observation is that they always occur at at deep, low points spiritually in Israel's history. Not high times, low times. 
And I get that from what Jesus said. When speaking of miracles, signs and wonders, Jesus says it is a, it is a wicked and adulterous generation that seeks after signs. And every time we see miracles in the Bible just clustered together, it is an evil and adulterous generation. So it says to me, something's wrong with the church today when we can't be content with God's word. And we have to have something more to validate the legitimacy of our belief than simply what God has said in his word. That somehow I can't believe unless God does a miracle. Jesus spoke to that very sentiment when he said, even if, if, I, if I were to give you the sign of Jonah, which is someone rising from the dead, and Jesus prophesying his own resurrection, you will not believe. So when the heart is of that condition, that we must have a miracle in order to believe that God's word is not enough, then chances are no miracle will be enough. You've all had conversations with people who have objections to believing. And you can patiently sit down with individuals and answer every single objection, only to they're going to come back with another objection the next week. And before long, you get, the, you get the message here, they are not really willing to believe. There's just that refusal, that demandingness of heart that's trying to get God to do what we want, and even when he does, there's still no faith. Elijah performed miracles, or at least was the recipient of miracles, every day, twice a day, for three and a half years. And at the end of that time, his faith was not sustained. His faith had been eroded. He was running from his life at the empty threat of Jezebel when there was nothing she could have done to him. So miracles do not necessarily sustain faith, and they are not necessary. God's word should be sufficient. So having said that, Peter and John perform a miracle, tremendous miracle, just like the miracles of the Gospels. They're going to the temple as they were still doing. They're still in Jerusalem. They've not gone back to fishing or anything else. We don't, there's a lot of questions here that aren't answered for us. We don't know why these men aren't working. We don't know why they're still in Jerusalem. But, and we don't even know all that they're doing. But we do know that every day they're going to the temple for prayer. And they are evangelizing while they're there. And so at the ninth hour, which was 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Peter and John are headed to the temple to pray. And they said that a certain man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to sit down, sat down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful in order to beg alms. Now we're going to find out in chapter 4 that this man was more than 40 years old. And he's been lame since birth. So it seems that this man, for his whole life, has been begging at the temple. And because he's now in his 40s, he would have by this time secured some of the better real estate to beg at because there would have been a pecking order. And the longer you're there, the better real estate you get to sit and beg. And so this guy would have had a premier spot reserved for himself for begging. I heard somebody one time um, do a, a, a living narrative of um, a um, kind of a drama production, one-man drama production of the story of Esther from the vantage point of one of the king's eunuchs, a guy named Harbona. 
His Harbon is actually mentioned several times in the book of Esther. It is a fascinating portrayal. He, and he just says, let me give you the story of Esther from a guy who was watching from the sidelines. And I wonder what this man, we don't even know his name. He's just a blind, just a lame beggar. How much this man would have seen of the life of Christ over these last three years? Because he's sitting at a gate that gives immediate access to the temple. He would have seen Jesus coming and going many times, especially in the last week of Jesus' life where he's coming and going every day from Bethany to the temple, from Bethany to the temple, back and forth. This man would have seen much of this. He could have perhaps seen Jesus carrying the cross out of, the, um, out of Jerusalem to where he was crucified. This is not a man who is sitting in ignorance. He was never allowed access to the temple itself because he's lame and the law forbid lame people from going in there. But he's just at the gate. He's got tremendous claim on the best place to sit in order to beg. This guy was not sitting in ignorance. There's much that he has seen and heard. Peter and John would have seen him many times. You wonder why Jesus never healed this man. I would say the odds are pretty good that Jesus had walked by this man. The odds are very good that Peter and John have seen this man every day for all the days that they've been going into Jerusalem to pray. But for some reason on this day, God communicated to Peter and John, this is the day this guy gets healed. Lame from birth. Keep that in mind. And when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. And Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze upon him and said, Look at us. Not me, but us. So again, in God's working through Peter and John, this was not a one-man show. But Peter understood that God's about to do something, and it's not through Peter, but through the two of them together. Look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. There is no instance among any of those clusters of miracles that I've talked to you about, where anybody ever makes a statement like this and it doesn't happen. Contrary to many that are involved in the faith healing movement today, there is a very high percentage where they will claim be healed and nothing happens. You don't see that with these kinds of instances in the Bible walk. And he did. This man had never walked. There is no... So you think about the miracle that's taken place here. There's no muscle. There's just flesh on bone. And Peter grabs the guy and yanks him to his feet. And in that instant, God completely restores this man's legs. We don't know that he would have been able been able to even balance himself if Peter hadn't grabbed him and stood him up to, on his feet. And immediately, his legs are functioning perfectly. Peter would call it perfect health. And with a leap, he stood upright and began to walk, 
and entered the temple for the first time in his life, walking and leaping and praising God. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? Tremendous. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they were taking note of him. They knew who he was as the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And this gives Peter an opportunity to preach. And the emphasis is not on the healing, but it's on the message. Not the miracle, but the message. So beginning in verse 11, all the way through the rest of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4 is about the message and the impact of the message. So immediately the miracle is taking a back seat. It's no longer the focus. The focus will be the message, God's word being spoken, and the impact of the message. Another at least 2,000 people coming to faith in Christ, 5,000 perhaps, depending on how what Peter's trying to say when he, when he, or Luke when he gives us the numbers. So briefly on the message, and then I'll make some observations. And while he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. And when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you gaze at us if, as if by our power or our piety we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered up and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. This is bold preaching. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ should suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and return that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. Moses said, The Lord God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him shall he give heed to every, everything he says to you. And it shall be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which, is, which God has made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth will be blessed. For you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. And then chapter 4 will give the response and the impact of Peter's words. So let me just give some observations and points here. The name Jesus is going to be emphasized 33 times in Acts. Obviously, the name itself is not magical, but the name represents the person in all that he is. 
We know from Philippians 2 that Jesus has been given a name which is above every other name. And that at the name of Jesus, every tongue shall confess and every knee shall bow, saying that he is Lord. It is the name above every other name. And it is still more powerful than any other name. Powerful to save and powerful to heal. There is no question about it. It is by the name of Jesus that we are saved. Paul's going to say that. I mean, sorry, um, Peter's going to say that in Luke. I'm sorry, in, in, in Acts 4.12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given by which men must be saved. Powerful unto salvation, Jesus. All a person has to do <coughs> is say, Jesus, save me. And they will be saved. Powerful unto salvation. When Paul says in Romans chapter 1, the gospel is the very power of God unto salvation, he means the gospel concerning Jesus Christ. It has never changed. There is no other name like the name Jesus. And there is no single name on this planet that is either more loved or more hated than the name Jesus. We love singing of Jesus. We love saying his name. But the world doesn't, and the world is doing all it can to suppress his name. Just as we'll see in chapter 4, where they won't even mention his name, but they'll say, do not continue to speak in that name. And they won't even say what that name is. They hate that name. Jesus' name is above all names. Jesus heals, and Jesus saves. And he does so on the basis of faith. Now, this is where it could be different ones that I was reading in preparation for today believe that this man was saved before he was healed. Or at least saved in the course of the healing, but not afterwards. And so it wasn't just Peter and John's faith that healed this man, but this man himself believed. But God uses Peter and John to bring this, him into perfect health. But this man was himself one who was believing in Christ. So in verse 16, on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which really should be just in the faith which through him has given him this perfect health in his presence to you all. The way that seems to be constructed would imply that this man himself had faith. And he wasn't healed merely on the basis of the faith of Peter and John. I would be careful to add that we are told in the epistle of James that when someone um, is needing to be healed today, there is no exhortation to call upon anyone with a gift of healing. Rather, James says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man 
can accomplish much. So it's a bit peculiar that James does not say, call upon the one who has the gift of healing. He says, call upon the elders and they will pray. Jesus heals. But it would seem that most of the time today that he heals in response to prayers of God's people and particularly the leadership of the church. In Peter's message, he reveals several things. One, God is a patient, long-suffering God. Once again, the very people who are responsible for crucifying Christ are given another opportunity to turn to Christ. This is astounding to me. This isn't my heart. This is God's heart. That even though they have, as he said, disowned the holy and righteous one, asked for a murder, put to death the prince of life, God is saying, I still want you to be saved. I still want you in my family. He is a patient and long-suffering God. He offers salvation again to those who crucified his son. The second thing we see is that God considered what they did. They knowingly killed him. They willfully rejected him. And yet, Peter says that you acted in ignorance. And I think, man, if there was ever a situation where people didn't act in ignorance, it was the killing of Jesus. But Peter says, you acted in ignorance. And even Jesus made that remark when they were nailing him to the cross. And he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they are doing. There was ignorance involved. And God is showing mercy and grace to them because of that ignorance. We know that before Peter can ever get to the good news, repent, therefore, and return that your sins may be wiped away. Good news. He has to first declare the bad news. You put him to death. You disowned him. You asked for a murderer instead of Christ. People would like to avoid the bad news. I know a couple of very famous pastors um, in the United States, don't know them personally, but they are on record, two of the biggest churches in the United States, and they are on record saying that you will never hear the word sin on Sunday morning from their pulpit because they don't want people to come in and feel bad. They just want good news. There's no good news apart from the bad news. And Peter does not hesitate to expose and remind them of what they've done in order to lead them to the good news of salvation in Christ. We know from Peter's sermon that Jesus must be recognized for who he is. And Peter calls him the servant of God, the holy and righteous one, the prince of life, Christ and the Savior. We know from Peter's message that repentance and returning are necessary for forgiveness and for times of refreshing to come. But I want to be clear that when Peter says in verse 19, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed to you, 
He's talking about the nation of Israel and the millennial reign of Christ. He's not talking about personal salvation there. When he speaks about repenting, that your sins might be forgiven, that's personal salvation. But when he says return, uh, I'm sorry, when he says um, that, that times of refreshing may come and that he may send Jesus, he's talking about the, the constant prophecies throughout the Old Testament that when Israel turns to the Lord, that Jesus will establish his kingdom on earth. And Peter clearly believes that that could happen in his lifetime, that there doesn't have to be a 2,000-year church age, which we are currently in, that in this first century after Christ was crucified and raised and ascended, that Jesus would come again to earth to establish his kingdom if Israel would simply receive him as their king. Jesus spoke of the same thing in Matthew 23 when he says that when Israel says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, then Jesus will return to establish his kingdom. Another cross-reference I'd point out to you. In Romans chapter 11, if you'll go there, it fits with what Peter's saying about times of refreshing coming and, and, and God sending Jesus when Israel returns. In Romans 11, we're told in verse 11, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? And they, they is Israel. May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression, if the Jews rejecting Jesus has resulted in salvation for the Gentiles, if their transgression be riches for the world and their failure be riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? That's an amazing statement. So if Israel turns back to the Lord, we will receive even more than what we've received when we receive salvation. Well, how can you get more than that? I mean, you hear me preach all the time. When you got Jesus, you got everything. How could you get anything more? Well, the more is that if Israel turns to the Lord, then Jesus will be free to come again and establish his kingdom on earth, and Christ will rule on this earth. The times of the Gentiles will come to an end, and the only kingdom on earth will be the kingdom of Jesus. And that is contingent upon Israel turning back to Jesus. So we should pray that Israel turns to the Lord. If you want this world to be straightened up, to be fixed. It depends upon Christ coming again to establish his kingdom. And that depends upon Israel recognizing Jesus as her king. So we should pray for Israel. And then one other observation about Peter's message. He says in verse 26, For you first, the Jews, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. I, that's a verse of scripture that has encouraged me and challenged me for most of my Christian life. Jesus died so that I would be turned from my wicked ways. My biggest problem in life is not other people. I think it was, um, I forget who it was, somebody famous, I think it was Mark Twain, said, nobody has ever done me as much harm as what I've done to myself. We are our greatest problem. And the greatest thing that God could do for us is to bring salvation to us 
where we could be turned from our own wicked ways. We live in a wicked world, but my biggest problem is not the wickedness of the world, it's the wickedness of my heart. And God has given his son to turn me from my wicked ways. Now let me just make some observations in general and not just about Peter's sermon. Peter had to have known that these people who's, that he is preaching to that were responsible for the crucifixion of Christ, that just as they crucified Jesus, that they're prepared to turn on him in a minute. If they don't respond in faith to what Peter is saying, then they will be his persecutors, even as they were persecutors of Christ. And in chapter 4, the persecution begins. He had to have known that. And yet, he still boldly preached the truth. We all know how it is when the person that you're talking to exercises some power over your life. And if they don't like what you're saying, it could cost you. Amen. We had a guest speaker that was with us a few weeks ago at his hill, and I had a chat time with the students where they can just ask whatever they want, and he interjected a comment because we got to talking about integrity, and he said, he says, you students need to understand that integrity comes with a price tag. It will cost you money to maintain your integrity. Just figure it out and just reckon on it. It will cost you money to maintain your integrity. To speak concerning Christ, just deal with it. It's going to cost us. That's the world we live in. People will turn, some, and others will not, and they'll turn against us. It didn't keep Peter from speaking. The second point, if the rejection of God's Son and the offer of salvation by Israel resulted in blessing, as I read in Romans 11, their acceptance will result in even greater blessing. Another obvious point here is that, and this was not lost on the enemies in chapter 4, when they look at how Peter and John are speaking and see the confidence they have, when they look at the kind of miracle that took place, the same kind of miracle that Jesus said, they're looking at this and they're going, deja vu all over again, right? Because they're going, this is incredible. We thought of this guy, and they did. And yet everything that Jesus did and said is now continuing with these apostles. It was astounding to them. Nothing changed. It's like they killed one man, now they've got 11 to deal with. And now the 11 is, is multiplied to thousands. And they're just going, what on earth? They're going, same person, same power, same message. And it was deeply frustrated, frustrating to the enemies. And the only conclusion is clearly Jesus is alive. And he is living in and through his people. No one can stop God's saving purpose from happening. These apostles are merely vessels for Jesus to act through. That's why Peter is so clear, this did not happen by our power or our piety. This is by Jesus and his name. We didn't do this. Jesus is doing this. 
So continuity, but also superiority. Seamless continuity between Jesus in the Gospels and Jesus in the Apostles. It's still Jesus, continuity. But there's, a, there's an aspect of superiority here as well, I think. Because when you look at the, at the life of Jesus on earth, there was never a time when 3,000 people got saved. And then on the next time he preaches, another 2,000 people getting saved. Didn't happen. And, it, and, it, and I, don't, I know there's a lot going on there as far as the Old Covenant and New Covenant and the, and the giving of the Holy Spirit. But my point is this. Jesus said in John 14 that when I leave, the works that I do, you shall do, and even greater works you shall do. And so healing a man that's been lame from birth, Jesus did that kind of thing. The works that I do, you shall do. But when Jesus said, even greater works you shall do, that's the curious part. You're going, what could be greater than healing people lame from birth, raising the dead? What could be greater? Well, we know the answer to that. And it's people being saved for all of eternity. Because this man that was healed, he's going to die. Anybody that's been raised from the dead is going to die again. There is a greater work than physical healing. And that is the soul being restored to a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't see 5,000 saved. I think one person redeemed is a greater work than the dead being raised. This is now a situation of the one who is holy and righteous making a sinner holy and righteous through one who used to be unholy and unrighteous. It's one thing for Jesus to make somebody holy and righteous, saving us. But to use somebody who themselves was an enmity at God, now you're going, wow. Jesus was the holy and righteous one, so we'd expect everything that he did was holy and righteous. But to take a sinner and work through him, holiness and righteousness, you're going, man, that is huge. So I believe we're seeing something here on these pages that exceeds the works that Jesus was doing in terms of those physical healings. Another point, and I hope this is never lost on us, as supernatural and exciting as this miracle was, it did not stop these people from thinking. It did not become the focus. But we see rationality with the supernatural. And what I mean by that is the emphasis is on the message, not on the miracle. And so Peter is, is drawing people away from that miracle. Yes, that's used as an introduction, as a platform, but it was never the basis of their faith. And so he gives a rational explanation for what has happened. He's expecting people to think. I have to tell you, I spent time this week looking at a, at a YouTube video talking about the signs and wonders movement of um, Bethel Church in California. And anytime you mention something, you know, a, a ministry by name or a person by name, you know, you're on thin ice. 
because you don't want to slander, you don't want to malign. But at the same 